1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are continuing our way through Paul's letter to the Church of Christ in Corinth, and we have turned another corner in this letter. Paul's just finished addressing problems and abuses related to the pagan temples, related to participation by Christians in those wicked ceremonies. And now Paul is changing his aim. In the coming chapters of this book, Paul will address specific problems found within the Corinthian church. So in 11:2 to 16, Paul addresses concerns related to authority and submission within the church, followed by the abuses of the Lord's table, found in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. And then in chapters 12, 13, and 14, he looks at the spiritual gifts, which were not being handled in the proper way in Corinth which are being used in divisive ways rather than unifying, edifying ways to the body as they were intended to be. And so that's where we're headed. But let's start first by reading our text, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2. We'll only look at verse 2 and 3 tonight, but I'm going to read uh, through verse 16. Hear the Lord's word for us. Now I commend you... Because you remember me in everything, and you maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven." For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For her hair is given to her a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. May the Lord give us understanding as we approach his text tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that your word stands forever. The grass may wither and the flowers fade, but it will stand. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be near to us and Give us the eyes of faith needed to see. Lord, help us to be uh, humbled, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be built up. And in all things, may your name be made great. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at verse 2, and we will note the commendations given. The commendations given. Paul says, Now I commend you... Because you remember me in everything, and you maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. 
So Paul starts this section with the word now, indicating a transition in the text. If you remember, all the way back to chapter 7, Paul has been working through various questions that had been sent to him by the Corinthian believers. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Paul said. And then he works systematically through these specific questions, starting with questions related to gender and sexuality. Chapter 7, verse 8, he speaks directly to the unmarried and to the widows. Verse 10, to the married, I give this charge. Then in verse 12, he talks to everybody. Then in chapter 8, he says, now concerning food offered to idols. There was apparently controversy related to the eating of meat that had been sacrificed to pagan gods. And so they asked Paul, what about it? And he answered. And now in chapter 11, we're moving on to Paul's answer to their next question related to submission and authority, specifically as symbolized by the wearing of head coverings by the women. But before Paul gets into the specifics, he begins by first commending the Corinthian believers. First, he commends them for remembering, and then he commends them for maintaining. Remembering and maintaining. Specifically, he commends them for remembering him, Paul. Paul seeks to encourage them for remembering him, for reaching out to him for insight and wisdom. If you'll remember, Paul has a long history with the Corinthian church, which we can read about in Acts 18. If you'd like to turn there, you can, and we'll get a little glimpse into Paul's ministry at the church in Corinth. Acts chapter 18. It is here in verse 5, we read of Paul going to the Jews who reject him, so he moves on to the Gentiles. Acts 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. That's quite a phrase. He was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ, the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And so Paul was run out of the synagogue by the unbelieving Jews. He goes next door to the Gentiles, and many Corinthians come to faith, launching the start of this young church. And he stayed there. And he labored. He stayed there for a year and a half, patiently preaching and teaching, unfolding the mysteries of God to them, nurturing them. He was like a nursing mother to them, the Scriptures say, giving them the food that was needful for them at their stage of maturity. And so back in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is commending this congregation for remembering that and to reach out to their spiritual father for the wisdom they needed. And there's a bit of wisdom in there for us too, I think. How often are we tempted to look at those who have nurtured us and fail to remember them? We might look at those who have labored over us, who have prayed over us, who have fed us and clothed us and 
protected us and neglect to be thankful for them. Fail to honor them for their work, for their sacrifice. We see it perhaps most clearly in the home where young people are tempted to flee as soon as they get a bit of freedom and to underappreciate the diligence, the sacrifice, the patience of their parents. To ignore the wisdom from those who brought them into this world. We can disdain our parents' wishes. We can ignore their warnings and neglect the truth that has been given to us through them to our own detriment, pridefully choosing to reject the good gifts that have been shown to us. But we should also note that this temptation occurs in churches too. Pastors and deacons, Sunday school teachers, people who have perhaps for years labored to feed your souls can be rejected ignored, forgotten about over the smallest little things. But the Corinthians didn't do that. They remembered Paul. They reached out to their spiritual father, whom the Lord had used to bring them into spiritual life. And so Paul commends them for this remembering. He also commends them for maintaining, specifically maintaining the teachings that Paul had given them. Your translation may say teachings or traditions, These are the the body of teaching, the body of doctrine or truth that Paul had given to them while he was among them. It's similar to what he says in 2 Thessalonians 2, when he encouraged that church to stand firm and to hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. I don't think we have to sit back and wonder, well, what are these traditions, Paul? What are these teachings? It's not some sort of secret wisdom some knowledge that has been lost through the dusty history of a bygone era. We don't have to wonder what kinds of things Paul might have preached about and taught about. He taught them to others, and he wrote them down. For example, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, just down the page. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Specifically related to the Lord's Supper, one of the two sacraments of the church. Paul was clear, I got this from the Lord and I gave it to you. He told them what to do. He faithfully passed on what he had received from Christ as a man who had been specifically called and appointed as an inspired apostle. Similarly, chapter 15, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul was faithful to pass on that which had been given to him. And what was so important for him to pass on? It was the gospel. He said that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul was faithful to pass on a deposit of faith, particularly containing the gospel of Christ, a Christ who had died a substitutionary death for sinners, who was raised on the third day that we might have hope and salvation. That's the core and foundation of any Christian church, the gospel. And so we have the right preaching of the gospel and the right administration of the sacraments, the two pillars, the two marks of what a valid and true church is. And Paul was faithful to pass on those things. And the Corinthian believers were commended by Paul for maintaining those teachings. It's an example worthy of our reflection. How faithful are we in maintaining the truth. Pastor Jordan exhorted us a few weeks ago to guard the good deposit of faith that had been given to us. Are we faithful to do that? Are we keeping a close eye on our doctrine and our practice to make sure it conforms with what has been written down in the Word of God for us? 
As a church, are we faithful to maintain these teachings about a pure gospel and the right use of baptism in the Lord's Supper? Are we faithful not merely to profess the truth, but to labor to see it passed on? Paul exhorted Timothy to find faithful men and pass on the truth that he had heard. We must do the same. We, we should labor to see this baton of faithful teaching passed on from generation to generation. Are we willing to pray for the purity of the teaching within our church? Willing to teach others as the gifting and occasion arises? Are we faithful to speak words of truth to our brothers and sisters around us? To exert, exhort and encourage those in the midst of trial? To help shoulder burdens and point one another back to Jesus? and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, Paul says in Galatians. Are we marked by the faithfulness seen in Eunice and Lois, two matriarchs in the church, who were commended by Paul in 2 Timothy 1 for dutifully passing on the Word of God to a young Timothy? Paul knows, and we probably have all seen, that a church's faithfulness is something that has to be actively conserved, purposefully maintained. Every church and every believer will naturally drift without faithfulness and intentionality to maintain right doctrine and practice. And so are we faithful? Are we faithful to the inherited tradition, to the inspired teachings found in God's Word? Would we be examples worthy of commendation like the Corinthians? It's a good, word, good question, worthy of our reflection, because we have to remember that yesterday's faithfulness is no proof of tomorrow's fidelity. I think that's clear. I think we can move on. Paul commends them for maintaining the truth, and then in verse 3, he reminds them of some foundational truths Truths which will guide and, and, and support his specific practical exhortations to come. And his foundational truths have to do with submission and authority. It's amazing how relevant this 2,000-year-old letter is. It concerns such a hot-button issue in our culture. Our current culture in America militates against any form of authority. And the word submission is almost never used in a positive way. Feminist ideas have so permeated society that many of us, I bet, were cringing as I even read the Word of God. To merely read these words in a public worship service would be borderline illegal in some places in America. To imply that a woman might have any sort of subordinate role is just insulting, perhaps even hate speech. But there's nothing new under the sun. The same issues that believers dealt with in Corinth 2,000 years ago are still with us today. And thankfully for us, while the grass may wither and the flowers fade, God's Word stands forever. And so what was the main issue going on in this church? Why did it come up? And how in the world is that relevant to us today? Well, there was, apparently in Corinth, some disagreement over the specific issue related to head coverings whether the women in the congregation were to wear some kind of covering over their head during the worship service. That was the question. But behind the question is the larger issue of authority and submission. And I think everything else in this passage 
is downstream of the issue of verse 3. That is, I've divided up this passage and this sermon and the next in this way. We'll cover merely these two verses tonight. Spend the remainder of our time thinking about authority and submission. And then next week, I guess two weeks, Lord willing, we will cover the rest of this section. And I did that because if you're not aligned with what Paul says on authority and submission in verse 3, it's really irrelevant what you do with the rest of the passage. You're not going to like what he says about the sign of authority if you don't like what he says about authority's essence. So we'll look at verse 3 in more detail tonight, and then we'll try and hit the rest of the passage next time. Paul says, verse 3, But I want you to understand... We might even say, I would have you to know this, Corinthians. Paul's putting on his his serious voice. He's saying, heads up, this is important, pay attention. It's crucial for you to know what I'm about to tell you. And here's that truth, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, if you've spent any time studying this passage you will know that oceans of ink have been spilled over what head means. It's the Greek word kephale, and scholars argue about it a lot. Specifically, does head mean source, like a spring might be called the headwaters of a river, or does kephale mean authority, source or authority? Some want to argue that it simply means source and not in any way authority. Man is the source of woman, just like Eve came from Adam's rib. And therefore, the argument goes, shared source means equality in every way and therefore allows us to maintain both our allegiance to the Scriptures and also some respectability in the eyes of the world. We can say that we believe the Bible but that we don't have to believe in that submission stuff. But is that what head means here in 1 Corinthians 11? Is it source or authority? I'm going to get a little little Bible study here, so don't let me lose you. I wanted to find out for myself what kephale means, and I dug through the New Testament, and I found 75 uses of the word. Most of those refer to somebody's noggin, right? John the Baptist's head was asked for on a silver platter. God knows the number of hairs on your head. Jesus' head was anointed with oil, verses like that. Another smaller set of uses of kephale indicate source, at least in some measure. Five of those 75 uses are found in the phrase, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Cornerstone being kephale. That seems to indicate, at least in some part, head as a source. But in the remaining uses of kephale, the word head indicates more as authority. And significantly, those verses are dealing directly with relations between different parties, particularly husbands and wives, on the issues of authority and submission. Verses like Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. So head is here clearly used in terms of authority. Wives submit to husbands just like the church submits to Christ. You say, well, that's okay and good, pastor, but what about Colossians 1.18? 
Doesn't that seem to indicate head as a source? Well, we might read it that way at first. Colossians 1.18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It sounds like source is the emphasis. However, if you keep reading in the passage, Paul makes the meaning clear. For example, Colossians 2.10, You have been filled in Christ who is the head of all rule and authority. There we go. Any idea that kephale only means source in Colossians 1 and not authority is thrown out. And so after digging through the Greek and looking at kephale, it seems to me to indicate that authority is the primary meaning when speaking of relational dynamics, especially in Paul's usage. We could spend days reading and discussing what kephale meant in the wider Greek culture, in the Greek literature, but how Paul uses the word is my main concern, and Paul indicates authority. And significantly, I think if you gut kephale of any sense of authority, you really have to contort this text, and you have to do interpretive gymnastics to make sense of other places like Ephesians 5. Better to retain the traditional interpretation of kephale as including a clear sense of authority here. And so back to our verse. If I've lost you, come back in. Notice in Paul's language uh, a bit of universality. He says that the head of every man is Christ. This is a foundation, a fundamental aspect of creation that's been built in from the very beginning. It's not merely believers who have Christ as their head. Unbelievers do too. He is their Lord. All authority has been given to me over heaven and earth, Jesus said after his resurrection. Hebrews 2.8, all things have been put in subjection under his feet. Unbelievers may not now recognize Christ as such, but scripture does teach that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, Christ's lordship ought to be most clearly affirmed and respected among believers. In the church, Christ's lordship is demonstrated in countless ways. In the way that we end our prayers, in Jesus' name. The fact that we center all of our doctrine and practice on the word of God. The way that we restrict the office of pastor and deacon to men as Christ is ordained in his word. The way that we recognize Christ as the only true Lord over our consciences as our confession states. Those that recognize and submit to Christ's headship are the ones who make up the church, and those who refuse to, commit, to submit to Christ's headship are the world. Now, as a side note, it's worth mentioning that it is not possible to live under no authority. Ironically enough, the way that God has made the world is that to fail to submit to His authority is to submit yourself to another's, to Satan. You cannot serve two masters. The Bible clearly teaches, but you will certainly serve one. And if God will not be your master, then you will be blinded by the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. You are a sinner just like your father, the devil. Don't be deceived into thinking that you're able to operate independently, that I can reject God and be my own God. You will take your cues from your head, and you will necessarily get your leadership from someone, 
And so we ought to choose wisely. Next, note how Paul says that the head of woman is man. Or some translations say that the head of a wife is her husband. I think that the, the former translation is superior, though it is undoubtedly true that the principle applies to husbands and wives. This is the principle of authority and submission written into the very fabric of our beings, of our nature. Men were made to be protectors and leaders, and women were made to be helpers. That's how God made things to operate. That's how God made His church to operate. Godly men ought to lead. And how this principle works itself out in situations outside of the church takes great wisdom and care. I wouldn't be able to address all of those situations from the pulpit, but I think the principle is clear, and it's for our good. Now, Christian feminists today want to take passages like Galatians 3.28, which says that in Christ there's neither male nor female, and they try and disprove this idea of authority and submission between man and woman, even in marriage. But to do that is to distort what Paul is saying, both in Galatians and here in 1 Corinthians. Paul makes it clear throughout his writings that in terms of salvation, everyone is welcome, men and women. And in terms of dignity, value, being made fully in the image of God, men and women are equal. God says, let us make man in our image, male and female. He created them both. Men are not inherently superior and women are not inherently inferior. And yet, even with this equality of being, God has designed for there to be differentiation in roles. We see this in Genesis 1 and 2. Man was created first, woman second. And that sequencing, Paul attaches special significance to in 1 Timothy 2. Man was given the task of naming the animals, of subduing and having dominion. He was the leader, the protector, the provider. And woman, while equal in dignity, was created for a different role. She was created to be the helper, a helper fit for man, a helper appropriate to man, to complement him, and together man and woman were to be fruitful and multiply and be faithful to the commission that God had given to them. And that same pattern is in place after the fall. Man is to be the leader, woman is to be the helper. That's the natural order, equality of being but diversity in roles. And note that this doesn't change based on gifting and ability. Some women might be natural leaders. They may be better communicators. They may be smarter. They're still called to be helpers. The same is true in the church. There may be women in the church who are incredible theologians, wonderfully gifted teachers, but God has so ordered the church that men are to be elders and deacons. It's consistent with the very nature of things, with the pattern of God's creation plan itself. But what is this headship to look like? Well, we see in places like Ephesians 5 that Paul is very clear that a man's leadership ought to look like his heads, that is Christ. That is, if you're a man, then very simply, your leadership ought to look like Jesus. Your standard as a husband as a father, as a boss, as a pastor, as a deacon, is to, for people to look at you and say, man, he's just like my Savior. That's a high standard. That means there can be no domineering. Man isn't to be heavy-handed, to be harsh. 
No selfishness, no severity, no cruelty. He's called to be like Jesus who was meek, tender, compassionate. He came to give his life in service to others rather than seeking to be served. In fact, the bar is for a husband to do whatever it takes up to and including giving of his own life because that's what Jesus did for his bride. But we don't often see that, do we, men? We like to be served rather than to serve. We like our wives to serve us, to gratify our desires rather than to help us fulfill Christ's. We too often are badly tempered, quick to anger, which Paul highlights in the same passage in 1 Timothy 2. Men everywhere ought to lift holy hands in prayer and not be quarrelsome. Our words and our actions should never be quarrelsome, domineering, but rather tender. But we can praise our good God that Christ was not that way. And He is not that way. Christ didn't demean and belittle His disciples. He wasn't quick to anger or quarrelsome with His family. He was a dutiful man, faithful in all of His capacities and all of His positions of authority. He was trustworthy, kind, gentle, compassionate. In fact, He was a joy. He is a joy for people to submit to. Are you that way? Doesn't that sound pleasant? That's the kind of authority you want to be under. That's the kind of leader that makes it a joy to follow. And so men, trust in that Jesus and know that He can forgive you of your failings. He can grow you into being a better leader, a better servant. He can make you into the man that you ought to be. And ladies, perhaps you've noticed in your heart a feeling. You might bristle at the idea of submitting to anyone or to any man or even to Christ. I urge you to consider Paul's words here and his words elsewhere. And these are the words of God and they are meant for your good. I know that men have failed you. In fact, every human leader has failed and will fail you in one way or another. But start by considering Jesus, who's not like those men. He's never failed. He's the only authority who will perfectly lead you and protect you. No husband, no pastor could ever provide you with the love and protection that only Jesus can offer. Start by thinking about Jesus, who He is and what He has done. And He could forgive you of any rebellious feelings or words or actions. And He can joyfully help you joyfully embrace God's plan for you. His plan for creation. In the strength of Christ, you can be the kind of helper that you were made to be. The kind of helper that all the men in this world really need. And also, if you are struggling under sinful authority, abusive, unkind authority, don't languish in it. Talk to someone. Come talk to a pastor, a Sunday school teacher. Talk to someone. Godly authority is meant to lead to flourishing, not to wasting away in misery. 
God's plan, rightly followed, leads to healthy, blossoming relationships, not to harsh or domineering or dangerous situations. I've spoken about that in previous sermons, but please don't hesitate to talk to someone. So now, lastly, a final question for us tonight. How is God the head of Christ? That's the end of the verse, and the head of Christ is God. We have Christ, he's the bookend on this verse. Christ over man, man over woman, God over Christ. Christ, the person of the Son who took on flesh, was completely submissive to the will of the Father. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Doing the Father's will sustained him. It satisfied him just as food does for me and you. John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, which we'll get to eventually, Paul speaks of the Son being in subjection to God. So Christ is totally and willfully submissive to the will of God. So we can get into a little bit of Trinitarian theology. We serve one God. That God eternally exists in three persons. Each person possesses the fullness of the divine nature, and thus there exists within the Trinity a complete equality of persons. And yet within the plan of redemption, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son, willingly agreed to add to himself the fullness of human nature, to come and be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death, and to be raised and seated at the right hand of of God the Father. He was willing to submit to this plan of redemption, to come under the authority of God and the agreed-upon plan of salvation for the people of God. The perfect authority of the Father, overseeing the perfect submission of the Son, all to the praise of God. Now much more could be said, and indeed I intend to say in coming sermons, but tonight we can close by reflecting again upon this submission of Christ, thinking on this plan of redemption. Christ has given us a tradition, a teaching, an ordinance, a sacrament whereby we regularly meet at the table and partake of the Lord's Supper when we gather together. And this supper is a picture of what Christ has done. God, in his infinite wisdom, had a plan. And he sent a perfect substitute who willingly and joyfully submitted to that plan. And for all of us that are under the authority of Christ, we have taken on the picture of Christ's authority in our baptism and in church membership. And if that's you, then we invite you to join us at the table. If you're like the disciples found in Acts 2, devoted to the apostolic teaching to the fellowship of the saints, to breaking of bread and to prayer, then join us as we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight. But if you have not yet submitted to Christ, then first do that. Be baptized. Join Christ's church. And then join us at the table. I'll pray and then our table servants will come. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us. That you would make us into faithful servants. That you would build us up where we are weak. That you would convict us where we are proud. 
that you would help us to serve as we are called to serve. Bless this time and these elements as we partake together. Lord, use them for building up your church. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.